Welcome to episode 20 of Around the Jewish World with Tom Price. Today we're going to start looking at Morocco, and I have to say that Morocco is one of the most special Jewish communities in the world, and we'll approach it a little bit differently from the way we usually approach things, which is normally I give you sort of a general history for context, and then I focus in on Jewish history. With Morocco, I'm going to blend a little bit of what's specific about the Jewish history of Morocco with a more general history of Morocco, and then also go on in coming episodes to focus on the very important and very special communities of Fez and Marrakesh. Among the reasons that Morocco is so special and so different from most other Jewish communities is that when the State of Israel proclaimed its independence in 1948, Morocco had about 350,000 Jews, the largest population of any Muslim country in the world. Now, before you quibble with that and ask about the Ottoman Empire, you need to remember that the Ottoman Empire was, in fact, a lot of countries that were stitched together in a multinational empire, but some of those countries are not really Muslim countries, even if the ruling empire was. Places like Greece and Bulgaria and Serbia were very much Orthodox Christian. And so, certainly, in 1948... Morocco had the largest Jewish community of any Muslim country in the world. It also has the only, as far as I know, Jewish museum in Casablanca. Um, You don't find that anywhere else in the Arab world. You do find Jewish museums in Turkey, which is a Muslim country, but not an Arab country. And one of the most fascinating things about Jewish history in Morocco is the various myths and legends surrounding its origins. And it's very hard to pick and choose among these myths and legends because there's little written evidence that proves anything beyond the shadow of a doubt. So some scholars say that the earliest Jews settled in what is today Morocco around the time of King Solomon, and they were part of the Phoenician maritime trade and helped the Phoenicians set up trading settlements and outposts as early as a thousand years before the Common Era. There is one community in the caves called Ifran that is theoretically the oldest continuous Jewish settlement in Morocco, and it dates back to 361 BCE. There is also the fact that Morocco was a major center for the Carthaginian gold trade from the 5th to the 3rd centuries BCE, and that Jews came to participate in this trade and settled in a town near what is today Rabat, which is the modern capital of Morocco. And as an example of the confusion that surrounds the history of Jews in Morocco, I want to pick one out of half a dozen different versions of the same story that I found dating back to the period when Morocco had ancient Jewish settlements and certainly some rabbis and teachers, but no renowned rabbis and teachers, nobody who could serve as dayanim, like rabbinical judges. So here's theoretically, at least according to one version, how Morocco acquired its first great rabbis. For centuries, the academies in Babylonia, the birthplace of the Talmud, 
were the center of Jewish life. At the end of the 8th century, however, they faced a serious economic crisis, and they adopted the time-honored formula of sending fundraisers abroad. Because the situation was so desperate, they didn't just send out any collectors. They sent the heads of the yeshivas themselves, along with their wives and families. The names of three of these rabbis are known to us, Rabbi Shmaryahu, Rabbi Chushiel, and Rabbi Moshe. The fourth remains anonymous. These four rabbis set out together, but in those times the Mediterranean was full of pirates, and the pirates knew that there were certain people who they could kidnap and sell for high prices on the slave market. They particularly knew that if they could capture Jews, especially prominent ones, they could collect a great ransom because Pidyon Shvuim, redeeming the kidnapped, is one of the primary commandments in Torah. So, aware of this, the pilots were always on the lookout for prominent Jews, and they had spies in all the ports of the Mediterranean, telling them when so-and-so was taking a boat, and where the, when the boat was leaving, and all that stuff. So, the pirates got wind of the fact that there were four great rabbis on a particular ship, and two or three days into the journey, the rabbis were captured. They were brought to the slave markets in Alexandria, where Rabbi Shmaryahu was ransomed. But the pirates were not able to get a high enough price for all four rabbis, so the remaining captives were brought further west to the slave markets of Tunis and Fez. Now, back then, Tunis and Fez were like the Wild West. There were Jews there, but no great rabbinic leadership. So now, the Jews in Morocco and in Tunisia saw a golden opportunity, and they made a deal with the pirates. They said, before we bid on the rabbis, we want to talk to them. Then they made the rabbis an offer that they couldn't really turn down. They would ransom them, but they wanted them to stay and help build up a thriving Jewish community. So Rabbi Chushiel and his son Rabbi Hananel agreed. Rabbi Moshe was ransomed in Spain. The fourth rabbi was sold off in Sicily. From these rabbis grew strong Jewish communities, and that's how the scene began to shift. North African Jewry no longer felt subservient to Babylonian rule, and this is how the western part of North Africa opened to Jewish greatness. Um, one legend concludes with Jewish history develops through unexpected twists and turns. But this ransom and the arrival of Rabbi Chushiel and Hananel were the beginning of a series of great rabbis and great uh, developments in Jewish religious and cultural life in Morocco. So let's try to put some of these legends into a broader historic context of the history of Morocco itself before we focus back in on specifically Jewish history, and particularly the great communities of Fez and Marrakesh. So I already talked about the Carthaginian gold trade. In late antiquity, Northwest Africa and Morocco were slowly drawn into the wider emerging Mediterranean world and Mediterranean culture by the Phoenicians, who established trading colonies and settlements there, one of which is very well known, Mogador, was established as a Phoenician city as early as the 6th century BCE. 
Morocco later became part of the Northwest African civilization of ancient Carthage and part of the Carthaginian Empire. This ancient kingdom was known as Mauritania, not to be confused with the modern nation state of Mauritania, which is a thousand miles to the south, and it flourished around 225 BCE or slightly earlier. It became a client kingdom of the Roman Empire in 99 BCE, and it was directly annexed by the Emperor Claudius in 44 of the Common Era, making it a Roman palace. This is actually the period when the Roman settlement of Volubilis was built, and Volubilis is where the oldest synagogues, Jewish gravestones, Hebrew inscriptions, etc. have been found in Morocco. So it's indisputable that sometime in the second or third century of the Common Era, there were thriving Jewish communities in this province of the Roman Empire. However, and of course there's always a however, there was a crisis in the third century and parts of Mauritania were reconquered by the original inhabitants, the Berbers. As a result, by the end of the third century, Direct Roman rule became confined to just a few coastal cities, and in 429 of the Common Era, the area was devastated by the Vandals, who helped bring down the Roman Empire all over the place, and the Roman Empire lost all its remaining possessions in Mauritania, and local Mauro-Roman kings took control of these settlements. In the middle of the 6th century, the Eastern Roman Empire, also known as the Byzantine Empire, re-established direct imperial rule of several of these formerly Roman settlements. They fortified them, they erected churches, etc. So, little known fact is that Morocco was at least briefly, in sort of the early Middle Ages, part of the Byzantine Empire. Now I'm going to speed ahead so we can get to some of the really interesting things. The Muslim conquest of northwestern Africa began in the middle of the 7th century, but was completed by the Umayyad dynasty early in the 8th century. It brought both the Arabic language and the Islamic religion to the area. Although part of the larger Islamic empire, Morocco was initially organized as a subsidiary province with local governors appointed by the Muslim governor general in Kairouan, which is in modern Tunisia. The indigenous Berbers adopted Islam but retained their customary laws, their unique language, and their completely different alphabet. They also paid taxes to the new Muslim administration. The first independent Muslim state in the area of modern Morocco was a kingdom that didn't last very long. For a variety of reasons, it was unstable, and by 788, and a man named Idris ibn Abdullah convinced the Berber tribes to break their allegiance to the distant caliphate in Baghdad and to join him in founding the Idrisid dynasty in 788. The Idrisids established Fez as their capital, and Morocco became a great center of Islamic learning and a major regional power, occupying several neighboring countries, in fact. In 927, the Idrisids were ousted by the Fatimid dynasty, and there was, again, a seesaw of power between various local groups and various Berber dynasties and 
lots of other people. From the 11th century onwards, a series of Berber dynasties arose, and finally there was the Reconquista in Spain, which we talked about, if you remember the episodes in Andalusia, and many Muslims and Jews started fleeing to Morocco even before the Alhambra Decree of 1492 went into effect. In 1549, the area that is now Morocco fell to successive Arab dynasties claiming descent from Mohammed himself. First, the Saadi dynasty, which ruled from 1549 to 1659, and then the Alawite dynasty, who remain in power from the late 17th century until today. A great military leader who came to power around the turn of the 17th century into the 18th century, so let's say roughly 1700, began to create a unified state and to get rid of all the foreigners who had enclaves. He reoccupied Tangier from the English, who abandoned it in 1684. He drove the Spanish from one of their settlements in 1689. He drove the Portuguese from their last territory in Morocco. But much later, under a successor, the siege of Malia against the Spanish ended in defeat in 1775. So the Spanish still actually control some small enclaves in what is today Morocco. One other unique thing about this period, Morocco was actually the first nation to recognize the new-born United States of America as an independent nation in 1777. American merchant ships in the Atlantic were subject to attack by Barbary pirates, but Morocco's Sultan Mohammed III declared that American merchant ships would be under his protection and could thus enjoy safe passage. The Moroccan-American Treaty of Friendship signed in 1786 stands as the U.S.'s oldest non-broken friendship treaty. Should you ever plan a visit to Morocco... One point worth noting is that because of all the dynasties in its past, it has actually four imperial cities, each of which has a royal palace, and the king makes it a point to spend a certain amount of time every year in each of these four cities, which are Rabat, Meknes, Fez, and Marrakesh. Now, moving into modern times, when Europe began to industrialize, Northwest Africa was increasingly prized by European powers for its potential for colonization. France already showed a strong interest in Morocco as early as 1830. Spain created a protectorate in some of the coastal areas of Morocco in 1864. In 1904, France and Spain carved out zones of influence in Morocco. Recognition by the UK of France's sphere of influence provoked a strong reaction from the German Empire, and a crisis loomed in European politics in 1905, one of many minor crises that eventually led up to World War I. That matter was resolved. There was another crisis in 1911. In 1912, the Treaty of Fez made Morocco a protectorate of France, which triggered riots in Fez. But technically speaking, Morocco was under the quote-unquote protection of France from 1912 until it gained its independence in the 1950s. There were a lot of uprisings and military rebellions against both France and Spain. In the end, there was street violence against Europeans throughout 
the Kingdom of Morocco, the French decided to allow the return from forced exile in Madagascar of Sultan Mohammed V in 1955, and the negotiations that led to Moroccan independence began the following year. In March of 1956, the French protectorate was ended, and Morocco regained its independence from France as the Kingdom of Morocco. A month later, Spain forsook its protectorate in northern Morocco, but kept its two coastal enclaves, Ceuta and Melilla, on the Mediterranean coast, which date from much earlier conquest. Upon the death of Mohammed V, Hassan II became King of Morocco in 1961, Morocco held its first general elections in 1963, and Morocco is a constitutional monarchy ever since. It has a rapidly rising population. I think in the six years from 2014 to 2020, Morocco's population increased by like 20%, and it's a very youthful population. Average income is rising It is largely a success story, one of the rare ones in the Arab world. Hassan II died in 1999 and was succeeded by his son, Mohammed VI. He is a cautious modernizer who has introduced some economic and social liberalization and whose wife is actually a professional and a computer scientist and an example of a modern Moroccan woman for probably the first time in Moroccan history. One last thing worth noting before we wind this episode to a close is that the kings of Morocco, particularly in recent centuries, regarded the Jews of Morocco as their most loyal subjects and the ones least likely to rebel or engage in any kind of skullduggery. So they gave the Jews a monopoly over the trans-Saharan salt trade, much of which ends up in Morocco. And as a result of this, the Jewish quarters in Morocco, which are always located near the royal palace, geographically very close, were called the Melah, which is both in Hebrew and in Arabic the word for salt. So it's interesting how the Jewish quarter in Morocco has a totally different name from the Jewish quarters in Spain, which are always La Juderia, or the Jewish quarters in much of Northern and Eastern Europe, which were always called the ghetto, which is actually an Italian word. We will focus on more specifically Jewish history and particularly the two great communities of Fez and Marrakesh in coming episodes. I hope you will join me for those. Thank you.